Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to consider a new resource. The Social Studies Network, a community of over 11,000 teachers who are sharing their lessons and supporting each other. The resource specialist assigned to help you with this task is Agent Gabriel Valdez. Welcome to another installment of the Meet the Resources series, where I feature the educational equivalent of gecko gloves, smart contacts, or flute guns. Technology that has been created to make your impossible lessons actually possible. A reminder that Lesson Impossible receives no compensation for featuring resources, just the satisfaction of knowing that somewhere a student might be more engaged in their learning, or a teacher might be able to leave work a little bit earlier. This was an especially fun Meet a Resource interview for me, as my own teaching specialties are French and Social Studies. Gabriel Valdez and I spent time talking about the actual resource, which is a database of more lessons than you could possibly teach in a lifetime, but also ended up having a more general conversation about the joys and struggles of teaching social studies. After our interview, Gabriel sent me a ton of links, not only on how to access the network, but also some really cool websites like Eagle Eye Citizen, where students solve American history and civics challenges by exploring Library of Congress primary sources. You can find these resources and more information about this episode and the podcast in general through the link to LessonImpossible.com in the show notes. Gabriel and I spoke in late April over Zencaster. Thank you very much for, for being willing to talk to me. And I was wondering if you didn't mind starting by just introducing yourself and your role, both personally and in the Social Studies Network. Okay, my name is Gabriel, and I'm from Southern California, born and raised, and I spent the last 15 years or so in Texas and traveling all over the world, uh, teaching uh, high school, middle school, um, and university level social studies, uh, mostly in the world cultures, world history realm. I do have some U.S. history background and also English as a second language, and I've taught in several countries, primarily in Texas as the state. Once you were teaching um, in public schools, then you went on to be involved with the Social Studies Network. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Well, basically, we were on Facebook, some friends and I, and hey, you know, we see all these different Facebook groups. And what about if we were to create something for primarily for social studies? And at first, you know, it was an offshoot of the Dallas-Fort Worth Network and just like, hey, we should come up with social studies. And just it's kind of like clicked. We tagged some other people and I've I've been in a lot of different organizations, for example, the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth. So I had a pretty big network at the time. I'd done the Fulbright uh, Hayes to Jordan. I've done several different programs and just reaching out to those people and like, hey, we should start something for social studies. So um, kind of focus where we can like share resources, create resources work with everybody and and it just kind of like snowballed and within one year like we had uh we were up to several thousand people 
and now we're pretty close to 10,000 people. So it's amazing that out of just the thought of like a few people kind of like hanging out, like we need something uh, for social studies teachers where we can share as an alternative teachers pay teachers kind of thing. And no offense to teacher pay teachers kind of thing. People don't get into teaching or education to be rich, um, to make a lot of money. And not that people are getting rich off TPT, but it's just something like that we all love and let's help get our students get all the resources for what they need. When I was starting off as a teacher and didn't have as many resources as I needed, uh, and then later on as a teacher, I felt like I had too many resources and it was like picking between them was the challenge. What are the main things that you think social studies teachers are looking for in terms of lessons and resources? It all depends where you're at. I think a lot of people um, are happy with just like, hey, every single thing is done. And I don't have to do anything. I just have to print out and give it to the kids. I do think there is some element of a small amount of people that are in that boat. I do think that most teachers like, oh, this is awesome. This is great stuff. And how can I like craft these resources for my kids? And in looking at those kinds of things, I think, you know, going back to the paradigm shifts, you know, we, we need students to be engaged. We need students to be active. We need students to be you know, inquiry-based model kind of thing. And in looking at these different resources that people are looking for, and yes, I know this this may look awesome. It has like really awesome graphics and, and whatnot, and it's really pretty and it's really cute, but the Lexile level is really low. And what are exactly are the kids doing? Is it something primarily focused at a recall level, which, which is great. Like I know students need to be able to recall before they can move on beyond that. But what exactly is the bang for the buck? And, you know, in weighing these different resources, you know, what exactly are you allowed to teach? Because in social studies, more so than math and ELA, it seems like, you know, after the two years in the social studies networks, there are a lot of teachers, like, they don't have any kind of um, autonomy. And there are other teachers, like, the districts are picking everything. Then other teachers who pretty much, they're on their own and just teach world history and they can pick and choose anything they want to teach as as long as they're teaching a standard, you know, and if the standard has no kind of like relevancy to what they want, they, they shift it as such. So it's, it all depends, like when there's no test. Yeah, I, I came from British Columbia where there's, it's just standards based and you have full autonomy as long as the sort of core competencies and standards are, are being checked off. And one of the things that I found really interesting when we switched to that model was, A, I, I, th- I thought it was fantastic. It really opened up a, a more inclusive model of history and really allowed me to expand my own knowledge because I'd been so Eurocentric in what I was teaching But it also led to a lot of intense conversations in the coffee room where a teacher was like, well, you're teaching the Haitian revolution. Don't you know that there's better revolutions to teach? And it really, I think, made for us really as as social studies teachers to reflect on, okay, now that we're opening up our curriculum and we have this glut of choice, what criteria do we use when making those choices? Exactly. And, you know, within Canada and from speaking with Canadian scholars, like the whole like First Nation and, you know, are we moving beyond just 
recognizing them like a, a, th a three-day unit, which is awesome, like, because those three days representation matters. And those three days that the teacher is teaching about the First Nations, that's that's better than, you know, the mass, vast majority of teachers that are teaching nothing at all in regards to that. We can't expect the kids to know everything about everything. There's there's going to be flaws or it's going to be concentrations. Yeah. The interesting, at least in BC, where we've really infused Indigenous ways of knowing into all areas of the curriculum, and then a really big focus on not making it a victim-based history. And, and I think that that's an overall trend too, that representation used to be like, let's talk about the ways that the colonialists have hurt people of African descent, indigenous people. And I think now the trend is more like, no, we also want to celebrate contributions and we don't want to make it a very special lesson. And, and I think that is definitely places where teachers, especially teachers that started teaching in a different model, are, are looking for resources because they know that they need to change their curriculum. They just feel very intimidated by how to go about doing it in the right way. Exactly. And as, as a public historian, you know, and one of my students right now, she's working on, and she this was of her own volition. She's, you know, she didn't hear anything from the school for a couple of weeks as the school district was determining what exactly to do. And we had been talking about, um, there was a project through the Dallas Holocaust Museum and, you know, to move beyond Anne Frank and, you know, where every child matters. And, you know, she was really impacted by it. And so she started keeping her own journal. So she would write twice a day and we were talking and she was doing flip grids and things like that. I'm like, hey, you know, and, and once this is all over, I'm going to reflect on it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's good to reflect on it, but continually add to it. Like your story is just as important as anyone else's story. And this whole, like, you know, every child has a name. The reason why we spent on the unit on doing it, like you're just as important as anybody else. And, you know, yes, we can talk about Nixon. Yes, we can talk about LBJ. Yes, we can talk about these important people, but these important people also had other people with them and they're just as important as those other famous people in history. What, what a lovely young woman to, to take that initiative in and decide to do that on her own. That's amazing. And, you know, we've done over the years, I've done like museums for a day and, you know, we've done these different works at my, at my school and we've had the kids like make things and invite the community. So it's not just them like learning and a kind of thing, we're just inviting. And sometimes like, obviously it's not going to happen this year, but it's interesting that I've been at the school for 10, um, 10 years and their brothers and sisters and cousins, they, every time we have these events, they still come by and they remember, oh, remember the time that I made this, that or that and kind of thing. And, you know, they're asking questions or answering questions and it's awesome, like hundreds and hundreds of people coming to these events. That transitions nicely to my next question, which is what would be your favorite lesson or unit that you've done in social studies? Probably like the, the long-term project-based learning. Uh, for example, two of them, like two of the large ones that the kids typically love like throughout the year are we, I do a public service announcement or have them create a public service announcement from Rainforest. So this particular lesson was basically a Rainforest Conference. And what and they have like eight different interest groups. And the kids listen to the different interest groups and 
basically they read and they give tokens to whoever they determine gets most um, gets the most amount of land. So I turned that into like a lesson where we do, we developed a rainforest conference and with this conference like they would they would be put into different groups and within these groups like the, the same eight groups and then I added a couple other groups um, like loggers, miners, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. consumers and conserve uh, conservationists for the rainforest. And you know, over the years, like they they read, they watch videos, they make posters, and they prepare their own scripts. And from those scripts, they basically create a PSA. A ton of the kids like will dress up in the principal has the principals have always allowed it where they go get dressed up and they're in character. And it's funny, like dressing up in smocks to be scientists and whatnot and, you know, to create their PSAs. So from that afterwards, then the kids like determine like who they can work with and who they can't work with in terms of like, you know, the, the loggers and native Amazonians probably are not, aren't ever going to work together and why kind of thing. And then they write a letter to the president of Brazil and they create a political cartoon out of it. So it's basically a unit for about a week. But the kids have always like loved that. And hey, do you still have the uh, video of my brother's, you know, PSA? And, you know, what year is he? And like that one always gets a lot of bang for the buck. That's that sounds really fun. As your role as coordinator of the social studies network, do you find yourself posting all your units on there or do you pick and choose which ones you want to share? I post a lot of them on there and I also created uh, a couple months ago, uh, created a shared drive and basically the shared drive has several hundred people on it sharing different units. And basically all I ask is send me a unit and you get access to the drive. And that came out of the result of like, hey, what were to happen if, because we were a Google school, what were to happen? And as I send things out to people and it says, you know, property of my school district and what happens if you're no longer with the district and what happens to all the stuff that you created with the district? And so backing everything up and then while backing everything up, like, hey, I have 10 years of world cultures and world, world save and going all these different conferences and presentations and just open it up to whoever. As long as you share something you've created, you get access to the drive. So any teachers that are starting to salivate at that idea, how do they get access to this amazing resource? They send a, a resource to social studies network drive at gmail.com. And, you know, as long as it's something they make, they get access. Right now we're at five gigs of resources. Yeah, I'll give them access. <laughs> Simple as that. And is there any, like, oversight or curation to make sure that the resources are being, you know, culturally sensitive? Or is it sort of just buyer beware? You never really know what you're going to get. Well, I look through the lessons, like, mostly. And if it is something that is kind of insensitive, I don't add it. Basically, I drag and drop. And if I notice, like, hey, this is something that's from... A, a publisher I don't add that either uh, there have been some publishers that have sent me their resources that they've created and I send everyone a disclaimer like hey you know please don't put this stuff on TPT please don't put this on TES or other websites ultimately if they decide to do it like <laughs> that would be <laughs> not so good but your honesty is your honesty and I watermark my stuff 
And, but at the end of the day, like if somebody just like wants to crop out a watermark, they're going to do it. I always chose really unique fonts and like I had my own font that I was the only one using it. So I always knew when kids, um, especially when I was tutoring and kids would come to me from other schools in the district. And sometimes I'd be like, Oh, that's my assignment. <laughs> my name has just been like literally whited out of the top corner. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. People have, uh, people have submitted stuff to me that stuff that I've created. I'm like, Oh, I made this lesson. <laughs> when you're thinking of where you're at in terms of social studies teaching and where you'd like to be, are there any resources that you're just excited to start creating or that you are looking to collaborate? Like what's the future of resource development for you? Well, it's funny that you mentioned it. Tomorrow we're going to have a, a webinar and basically people have been sending them, um, I've, I've created a doc. What exactly are you teaching this year? What exactly are you, do you think you're going to be teaching next year? And thinking about this dis distance learning model, um, who knows how long it's going to be, if it is going to be, you know, if, are we going to come back fall semester? Are we not going to call, come back fall semester? And even if we are not, it would be nice to have some emergency resources to do like once a week or every other kind of week kind of thing. Just we're ready for some units kind of thing. So with that, it basically I posted on Twitter, I posted in the social studies network and a couple other places. And tomorrow we'll have a meeting and basically we're going to meet up and decide, divide what what we're doing and who would, who wants to be involved and how can we effectively create something for either ending this year or for next year kind of thing. So it's going to be a, a collaboration of world cultures and world history and world geography. Awesome. And so this episode will definitely air after that conversation happens. So I'll make sure to put some links to ways that people can see either what you guys have decided or can at least send in their own research to, or their own resources so that they can get access to that. I'm sure, yeah, the collective mind is always so much more comforting than facing doing it all by yourself. Exactly. For example, like stations. I love stations. I loved them in high school. I loved them in elementary. I love them in, in middle school. And, you know, a lot, they're a lot of work. And, you know, either at the beginning or the end of the, uh, as a review, like they're really super cool and has kids like doing a lot of different activities and, and, and they're great. And a lot of the teachers that, you know, within my district, I've shared the stations I've made and, you know, some have shared theirs that they've made as well. And I've told like some of the teachers in, within my team, like, hey, we like, let's make some stations, not all the time kind of thing, but like as a review model for every, every six weeks kind of thing. And you know, and oh yeah, yeah, it's like whenever you make it, you share it with us. And it's like <laughs> it's a lot of work to make a station. And if more people want to hop on, like we'll do it, kind of thing. I'd like your uh, opinion on something that I a conundrum of mine when I was teaching social studies, uh, especially in the lower grades. I was teaching high school, so eighth and ninth which is when using primary sources. I know some teachers think that you should only look at the primary source in its original form. Some teachers are like, no, you need to adapt and 
reframe in language that is more welcoming to students that might have reading struggles or ELL students. I always tried to kind of compromise and have like, okay, you can look at source A in the original, but if you need some help, there's B, which is, you know, broken down into some more modern English. But I never really knew like what was the best thing to do from a historical point of view. Do you have any opinions on that? I think, especially now, there is no child who's left behind. And we're in the mindset that we, we have to differentiate materials. And yes, you, you do have to teach the academic language, but I think code switching is is awesome. Like They have to learn the, the academic language. They have to learn all the verbiage. They should see the original. Um, but I also think that they should see like at a, at a language in Lexile, which they understand. I mean, when we give the kids materials to read, like for example, in ELA, we, we, we Lexile it. And if I give like someone who's reading at a third grade level, uh, you know, the constitution of, of whatever nation and, and like, okay, good luck. And it's an old English, but like Congress <laughs> instead of Congress and they're, they're going to be lost. And so in code switching and most of my kids speak Spanish as their primary language. And there are some other languages mixed in. Um, the vast majority of my kids speak Spanish. So I, I code switch all of the time. Do you know of a, a resource, a really good resource? Because that was something too that I struggled with, which is I'd have the primary source and then I'd be like spending hours and hours trying to translate it into different tiers of, of comprehensibility. Do you know of any good resources where that's been done or people have can at least contribute the ones that they've done and get access to others? Obviously, there's a social studies network, but do you know of any others? The one I use primarily for primary sources is docsteach.org and by the National Archives. And with that, you can look at the different levels kind of thing. And you can have the kids, like if you create accounts, where the kids can play with the, the the documents themselves. That's that's awesome. Maybe I've translated things that were already translated into different reading levels, and I <laughs> that was just some <laughs> some hours down the train. <laughs> well, I learned things too. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it, but it's good for the cause. Like that's a, that's amazing. So, for example, I'm picking up one, uh, analyzing or focusing on detail spotlight. So within this lesson, the kids will learn and practice document analysis techniques, notice do, uh, document features to inform analysis, and understanding uh, primary sources through context. So with these like spotlight tools, it focuses on you're reading the, the initial document, but you're focusing on specific words. Oh, awesome. Yeah, because that, that's another thing, too, that I really focused on because it was something I had amazing social studies teachers don't get me wrong but when I went to do my history degree the the skills for reading a primary source it was just assumed that you were really fluent in historical analysis of these documents and so that's something that I I really try and prep my kids with starting from the beginning, which is like, how do we access and really breaking it down so that by the time they get to higher grades or even they pursue post-secondary studies in it, that they, they feel comfortable with that congrex uh, and they don't just panic when they see it. <laughs> 
exactly and then you know the, the whole thing like for example when you're looking at a picture like what's out, what is what's outside if we extend this picture what else could we expect who's taking the picture who's who's not in the picture why are they not in the picture who else kind of thing for example like the two famous paintings one's of the declaration of independence and the other one is signing of the constitution and you know having like the open windows versus the closed windows and kids like you know why are they why are they meeting in the dark why are all the windows closed it's there's no air conditioning it, it's really hot it's in the, it's the middle of the summer what why why do you think and, and getting into like look at all the what the clothing that they're wearing and and where they're at, at least at the sixth grade level and they're asking those kind of questions and you know going in the hidden tech kind of thing yeah i had a a student teacher shout out to alana who would start every lesson with a either painting or a photograph of the the issue or the historical event that they were talking about and it really it really emphasized for me the value of repetition when it comes to skills and then that's something that I try and work on in social studies and in French too where sometimes I'm like now we've learned the skill we're moving on but the circling back again and again and by the time that she was done with them these kids could look at any photograph any picture and just give you the most spot on analysis, really sophisticated. And that was just because she was bringing it back again and again and again, instead of moving on. And I also thought it was just a wonderful way to, to start that lesson. The kids knew every day there was going to be a picture or a painting and they needed to put those, you know, the, the thinking hat on when it comes to these, these visual analyses and I, I really learned a lot from her seeing her do that. I was really impressed. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful tool. One of the sources that I use, like, and, you know, in teaching that I'm more contemporary type of history is like the Boston, um, the big picture. And time has changed within our periodicity and we're like 45 minutes. And of those 45 minutes, like we have to do a, a mastery of learning and we have to do a demonstration of learning and like all of these like campus specific checks, like my time is like really, really did dwindle down. But I used to have like, when I have these 60 minute kind of things like discourses and we would look at a picture a day and we same exact thing like Alana and shout out to her um, kind of thing and just analyze these kinds of things and, and teaching is like human compassion and from the different elements of things like that. And then... My favorite question to ask educators is if you had unlimited school funds, full control, unlimited time, what would be your ideal curriculum, classroom, or school? And thinking about my particular school, and I think some of the struggles that my district has as a whole, um, you know, we're really struggling right now um, with literacy and there's a big push for literacy. I think if I had time, I would spend time and money. I would spend that time and money and have the curriculum uh, uh, departments get together and basically plan out a map, um, map out the calendar and not beyond, move beyond the calendar just being like, hey, these are the dates when we're covering. How can we be intentional in our design to do cross-curricular support in that? Every kid is learning, uh, not necessarily project-based learning, learning because obviously, you know, within some contents, they're going to be recalcitrant to 
hey, I don't want you teaching math kind of thing. You know, you teach social studies, stay in your lane. But how can we effectively, like say for example, within social studies, ELA, if ELA is reading a book such as the Clay Marble, which in our school they used to read, they haven't read for several years. How can we like mirror that in, in teach within social studies about Asia or we teach about refugees at the same time? Why are we doing it like, we know what kind of what the other teachers are teaching, but not really. And, you know, science could be an easy connection as well. I would really have them sit down and be intentional by design with these types of lessons. Yeah, absolutely. One of the most powerful pro Ds that I, like professional development sessions that I did was really simple, which was as social studies teachers, we sat down with some people in the English department and we just went, okay, let's talk about writing expectations in each grade level. Like let's as social studies teachers really look at what the expectations and the standards are in English so that when we assign things like paragraphs or essays that we're not necessarily stepping on English department's toes but we also have fair expectations of what the kids can do like obviously you need to teach how to do it in social studies and that's a very different beast than a textual analysis necessarily And then I was able to follow up with a friend in the English department where I was like, okay, this is what I'm planning on teaching in terms of paragraph writing and my expectations for my social studies students. And then she sat down with me and she like guided me through it because I'd never really been trained in teaching kids how to write. Like I was social studies and then she gave me the same worksheets as she was giving her students and I'd re give them out to them. And that was really like the light bulb moment for a lot of them. And they're like, well, this is Ms. McBurney's worksheet. And I was like, I know because we're teaching the same skill. And eventually we were able to line it up where as she was teaching the skill in her English class, I was teaching the same skill in social studies, but obviously modified for what we were doing in social studies. And that was just, I think, really helpful for the kids to even, because the teacher's thinkings are siloed and we pass that thinking on to kids. Like they're like, well, English stays in English and social stays in socials. Exactly. And that's a great point. And, you know, I, like, we have this state testing in Texas called TELPAS. And essentially what TELPAS is, is they're writing in every class for three or four weeks. And we're collecting packets for the state and they want to usually have like, I think five samples and some schools might have more and some schools might have less. And pretty much they're writing in every, in every content. And they like, let's say with social studies, we're asked for two, science is asked for two, ELA is asked for two, um, math is asked for like two, and then the electives are asked for one, but basically so they can uh, collect the best packet out of five for five writing samples. But, you know, when teachers are only teaching it, like, hey, I'm going to have you write, and we're only using these three, four weeks to come up with this packet, it's not authentic. And even if, like, you go over something you've gone all over all year, the kids don't know how to write in your class. They know how to write, but they don't know how to necessarily write for you, just like you said. So something that I've, like, used throughout the year is collaborative journals. 
and I picked it up at a, at a Fulbright training. And basically what the collaborative journals were and what they had designed is like, you're gonna spend X amount of time writing and then you're gonna pass it over to the next person who's gonna add on to your thoughts. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was. And so with my students, I do it a little bit differently. We write at the beginning or the end of the period and we don't do it all the time. We do it like two or three times a week. And I keep the journals and they sit at the same place for X amount of time. The kids move. I don't have uh, seating charts for the most part beyond like X amount of time because, you know, even the best groups, like they need to hear different thoughts and they, they need to work with different cohorts. So they, they write and they, they're responding to the previous period. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, they love it. It's kind of like Harry Potter, Harry Potter and Tom Riddle, like writing back and forth. And they don't know the kids because at our school, they're kind of like in cohorts. They're, they're, these sixth graders are like all the time. Like, can we write today? Can we write today? Can I read what they, how they responded? Oh, that, that's such a great idea. And I mean, that's a, like, my mind is now spinning because I'm like, we could do that in French. We could do that really in any subject matter. It's just getting the kids to express their thoughts and then respond to someone else's thoughts. Exactly. And in the beginning, you do like, and I, I do a mixture of like content and sometimes just like silliness kind of thing or just random thoughts, you know, so they, they keep it fresh and you know, dial it down a little bit. But at the beginning of the year, it's kind of, is Batman a superhero? Why or why not? And that'd be so cool too, like in developing your thinking about more controversial issues. Like if you even like assign some kids that they have to take one point of view or another point of view, and then the person writing in response has to then like tear at their argument. Oh man, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> And I have the kids in, in the beginning, like I'll have, uh, I'll do, and I do Classcraft and it's a Canadian uh, company and it's kind of like Class Dojo on steroids, I think. Uh, but the kids really like it, at least at the sixth grade kind of thing. I have friends who teach high school and they've all said the kids love it there as well. And basically we do like these randomized things and, you know, the kids, they read someone else's and they read it out loud. You know, if there are any names, don't read the names. And they read the previous before, like previous period. And then they read their response. And sometimes, like, if it is a controversial subject, I'll leave it for, like, don't, you don't have to read your response. Just read the, per, the pre, um, previous periods. And the next period will read that. So then the kids get to hear how other kids are thinking kind of thing. And it's a, like a big cross-section of kids that um, they do or do not know. And so they really get into it. To bring it all back together, I'm sure that's just one of the many amazing resources on the Social Studies Network. <laughs> I have a couple examples on there from when I was in Jordan, um, like writing about migration of the Collaborative Journal. I mean, that's it for, for my questions, but is there anything that you'd really like to add or want listeners to know about you or the network? Well, we welcome all people. We look forward to working with anybody and everybody. And and we, we all want to share with everybody. I mean, we're all on Twitter. We're all on Facebook. We're all in these different places trying to find the best resource to ultimately bring back to our students. So we appreciate anything that anyone can share. And we appreciate, you know, just maybe you just want to take information as well. That That's fine, too. Join in on the conversations. We love the conversation with everybody. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being willing to take the time to, to share this with me and the listeners. I really appreciate it. 
You're welcome, and thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. was Agent Gabriel Valdez with the amazing lesson sharing and collaboration resource that is the Social Studies Network, as well as some insights into his own teaching practice. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will be available along with links to resources we mentioned and information about previous special agents at lessonimpossible.com. Now, if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues or reading and reviewing it on your podcast listening app. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.